Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 92. I'm still here in Taipei, Taiwan. You know, initially, I didn't really know the path that I would be taking. I was getting really comfortable in Jakarta, but I know that on December 15th, I want to be in Hawaii. Alima Leigh McFarlane, who's been on this podcast, she's going to successfully defend her championship belt in Honolulu. And I'm going, man, and I'm really, really, really excited about that. So I thought, like, what's kind of the trajectory I could take that will get me closer to Hawaii? So, Taipei. (laughs) And I'm just here. It took me a little while to sort of get plugged in and integrated into sort of like a social group here. But I've finally done that, and now I'm starting to book a bunch of podcasts. Today I did a written interview with a woman who runs an Indonesian restaurant here in Taipei. So things are getting pretty exciting and pretty cool. My first day here was really interesting. I was like, I know that there's really cool night markets. I want to go to a night market. Now, I was getting a little bit comfortable with speaking Indonesian because I had been there for so long. So then I came here and I know no Mandarin at all. And, you know, the, the letters are Chinese characters and I don't know them, you know, at all. (laughs) So I struggled a little bit with some early communication with people. And then I get to this night market and it's incredible. Like there's so much good food. There's so many people. It's chaotic. It's like the kind of crazy that I like. Now I was waiting online to get this, what was it? Uh, A pork pepper bun. It's a huge line because it's a a famous place that's blogged about. And so you, you get in the queue and I'm in this queue and there's like huge, just like swell of people just pushes towards us and people are like freaking out and yelling and I see camera crews and there's this guy waving and some other people waving flags and I get swept up <laughs> into the momentum and movement of these people and they're all waving to the camera so here's me like this foreign guy sort of sticking out like a sore thumb just waving at the camera like I don't know what it is I'm starting to figure out like okay this looks like some sort of a political rally maybe this is the president. Like I I had no clue. It turns out that midterm elections were just a few days later. And I started to see this more and more, not as sort of raucous and as large as it was that night, but throughout like my morning runs and and going around, (laughs) wandering around the city, getting food. Do you see these trucks with posters and like billboards and people waving flags and shaking hands? It was like the final push before elections, I guess. And then I started after the elections, which were on a Saturday, which makes a lot more sense to me than a Tuesday because everybody's off Saturday. But anyway, the elections were on the Saturday. And then like directly after that, I started seeing all this news. And I knew that there were all these progressive reforms that were supposed to take place. And I'd spoken to a few people who were like totally sure that they would get passed. And they were all, literally every single one was voted down. So I'm starting to see international news outlets cover the elections. And I wanted to make sense of it. So I reached out to someone who directed me to someone else who directed me to Brian. Brian is the co-founder of New Bloom. They are a progressive journalist site, and he is really, really brilliant. (laughs) I've talked before about how with sort of like the range of people that I've had on this podcast, I have to try to, you know, at least match them in conversation and come to the conversation knowing, you know a good amount of the topic that we're going to talk about or, or else I'm going to sound like a total fool on the, on the, on the podcast. Um, so I did as much reading as I could in a short amount of time, but he's just really brilliant. Is, he has a really good um, handle on Taiwanese politics and American politics for that matter. He's from New York. He's um, a Taiwanese American. But he really helped to break down the history of Taiwan and then the politics of what's going on now and sort of where the country might be headed in the future. So, yeah, this was really informative, and um, I'm really glad that he came on and, and cleared things up for me. And hopefully you'll learn something. I came to Taiwan not really knowing much, and I have a hunch that a lot of people don't a lot of people from the Western world don't know a whole lot about Taiwan. So I uh, hope this is a good education for you. You can check the show notes for this episode, and you will find, as always, a link to all of the accounts and websites for the the guests that I have. And so, That is for New Bloom Today and Brian. 
right after this introduction, I'm going to play you a song instead of the normal interlude. There's a lot of really cool music coming out of Taipei. And, well, this isn't actually out of Taipei. It's from a town just to the south. But um, a lot of good music coming out of Taiwan. So I chose something for you that's in English. This band is called The Fur. The album is Town. And the song that will be played is called Short Stay. You can go and buy their stuff on Bandcamp. You can buy it on iTunes. They are like an indie rock band, like shoegazy, really dreamy stuff. And uh, I've been uh, rocking this jam for a few days now. I really like it. So check the show notes for the spelling of the band and the song title and all that stuff as well. Finally, you can find a link to my Patreon account in the show notes for this episode. That is a subscription-based service where you can support the podcast monetarily if you have the means to do so, and only if you have the means to do so. If you don't and you still want to support, you can do so by leaving me a five-star rating and review on iTunes or the podcast application that you use most often. That goes a really, really long way. All right, folks, I hope you like the song that's about to follow and the conversation with Brian. Peace.
Well, first of all, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. You're kind of my neighbor. You're from New York, huh? That's right, yeah. I grew up in New York. Um, I grew up in uh, Orange County, actually. Oh. So it's like about an hour out from New York City. But, uh, you know, I went to college and did grad school in uh, New York City. You went to NYU, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. Oh. That was undergrad. Wow. I did uh, my MA at Columbia, so... I've been oh in New York City a while. Good for you, man. Yeah, I was there two weeks ago, and I couldn't believe how bad the uh, subway had gotten. Uh, you mean in terms of like how crazy it is or how slow it is? How slow it is. Yeah. Just that, you know, <laughs> everything was an hour. In the past, now two hours and that kind of thing. Yeah, and it's they keep raising the price, too. That's also ridiculous. Yeah, it's not, not getting any better. Either. No. I think just, you know, all that damage from Hurricane Sandy. I mean, I was there during then, and uh, it's still not fixed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Certain stations. Yeah, exactly. At what point in your life did you become interested in politics? Um, I guess at an early age, I think just really high school. I uh, had like I was a chapter of this like you know the human rights club in my uh, local high school, and in college, uh, Occupy Wall Street happened, and so I became you know involved in that, and that kind of just extended to uh, when I moved back to Taiwan. Just uh, you know the Sun Fire Movement happened, so I got involved in that. Um, I think wherever I go, I've just been kind of interested in politics for about the last ten or twelve years. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, I mean, you, you mentioned Occupy Wall Street, which, oh. um, you know, there's a global implications, but was, uh-huh. you know, an American event. Uh, politics in, in Taiwan are actually pretty complex. Like, mm. while living in the U.S., uh, I mean, were you, were you following what was going on here? Like, you mentioned the Sunflower mm. Movement. Um yeah. Like, how closely were you uh, keeping up on what was happening in Taiwan? It's funny, because I basically did not keep up on it at all. I was wow. not interested in it. Um, I was very much more interested in maybe more broader Asian politics or, um, you know, regionally speaking, or just more focused on American politics. Um, and also, my parents are uh, basically KMT, so that I had this more, you know, pan-Chinese way of looking at Taiwan at the time. Oh. Um, so I did think of Taiwan as part of China back then, and I did pay much more attention to actually China uh, and Taiwan together rather than looking at Taiwan in itself as its own particular thing. Yeah, and I'm going to get into that and maybe some of the history so oh. that people can understand. But of course. I first want to talk about my first night here, I went to a night market. Uh-huh. And... I had come here from Jakarta. I wasn't initially planning on coming to Taipei. And so I came here really sort of blind. Uh-huh. And I'm in the night market, and there's this mob of people. Uh-huh. And there's cameras, and there's people cheering and waving stuff. Uh-huh. And I get like, swept up in this crowd of people. Uh-huh. And the cameras are focusing on them, and they're waving. And like now I'm waving. I'm like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and then I'm like, I think this is like a political rally, maybe? And then I find out, oh, there's a big midterm election coming up. Uh-huh. Um, Right before the election happened, I'd been speaking to a couple people here, and they were telling me about like some progressive reforms or progressive issues that were sort of on the bill. Before we even talk about the results, what was sort of at stake during these elections? What was being voted for? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Taiwan has two major political parties, similar to other places in the world, but uh, one party is pro-China and pro-unification, while the other party maybe does not op- overly, overtly voice that it is pro-independence, but is basically does not want Taiwan to become part of China. And so what is at stake with every election is really Taiwan's future, um, whether it will exist at all as a democratic country. And so that, that's always at stake. Um, and apart from that, this time there were uh, several national referenda questions. Um, questions. Uh, there's a provision in the Constitution to have um, voting on key issues, and you can vote on it as a nation if you get enough uh, signatures for a petition. And so what was voting on this time includes whether should Taiwan use nuclear energy, uh, whether it should legalize gay marriage, whether Taiwan should try to participate in the Olympics as Taiwan rather than Chinese Taipei, um, which is a name used to refer to Taiwan because the Constitution sta- says that um, Taiwan's still part of China, and you know different things like that. There are ten different questions, um, so there's there's quite a lot of national issues at stake, but also these kind of international ones. Now, again, the people I had talked to, it, it almost seemed like, at least to them, in their perception, like it was a given uh-huh. that things like marriage equality were going to be voted yes. Uh-huh. And am I correct in understanding that every progressive issue was voted down? Yes, that's right. Every progressive issue. Help me make sense of that. Why do you think that is? Uh-huh. It's very interesting because I think, uh, particularly nowadays across the world, we're all talking about you know social media and echo chambers and you know the political divide that really exists in society, but people sometimes are not aware of because you're constantly surrounded by people that say the same things you do and echo what you say. 
And that's become an issue in Taiwan um, between young people and old people, for example, um, between progressives and conservatives. And so I think that is uh, what it became very visible that in, um, in this set of elections and with these different referendum questions, um, it is actually that progressives maybe are in the minority in, in Taiwan. In the years in the Sunfire movement uh, in 2014 up till now, I think it was broadly thought that you know, progressives are in the majority. Uh, because that seemed what seemed to be out there, who was organizing and having protests. But now we see that there actually are conservative forces out there, just maybe they don't speak up as often. Um, perhaps they are the silent majority. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting point that you make because I, I've talked about this a few times, but since I've been traveling, we've seen in Brazil, a very far-right president was elected. I mean, we know about politics in the U.S. right now. In... Um, uh, Sri Lanka, I've talked about how they recently elected a president and right off the bat people were saying, no, he has crimes against humanity. We don't want him. If you put things into sort of an easy way to understand it is left and right maybe for people like conservative and democratic, a lot of these far right or very conservative leaders are very, the rhetoric at least is like nationalistic, right? Mm. Uh, you know, make America great again. The opponent in the Indonesian presidential election for next year is literally using that same slogan and saying, make Indonesia great again. Mm. Here, though, help me understand that aspect in that it seems like conservative voters are for unification with China. And so that would not be Taiwanese nationalism. Like, does that make sense? Yeah, it's very interesting because uh, there are a lot of different nationalisms floating around in Taiwan. There's Taiwanese nationalism, which is maybe pro-independence. There is Chinese nationalism, which is pro-unification, but it's actually not the same nationalism as the Chinese nationalism in China. And the Chinese nationalism, you know, there are multiple versions of that too. And so that's the thing that's very interesting that uh, between left and right, you do have these uh, competing nationalisms. But because the, uh, the Kuomintang, the KMT, when they came up from China, they were the ruling party, the authoritarian party for so many decades. And so this pro-Chinese, pro-unification nationalism, that is the right wing in politics. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you have the, uh, through the democracy movement, you have, uh, um, you know, the formation of a second party, which became the DPP, the center-left party, the current center-left party, which currently holds the presidency. And that maybe embraces a form of more left-wing, uh, you know, Taiwanese nationalism in some sense. But even then, there, there are cleavages, you know, there are splits um, in this kind of a more left-wing nationalism. For example, there are those that want to exclude those or who descended from the, with those that came with the KMT, and there are those that are more inclusive. Um, there are people that, you know, are more progressive, more supportive of gay marriage. Um, there are people that are more opposed to it, and that kind of thing. And so it's actually a, just a very mixed bag. Yeah, it's, it's complicated, man. It's very complicated. <laughs> I think uh, in Taiwan, even just nobody can really sort it out. Yeah. You know, one of the things I had read before I came here, because I'm interested in talking to artists and musicians, uh -huh. and, you know, I had read that whereas in China it might not be, in Taiwan it was actually quite safe for people, like, all across the, like, gender and sexual spectrum mm -hmm. or orientation spectrum, and that, you know, it was sort of a safe haven here. Uh -huh. um, I mean, aside from marriage equality rights, like, do you think that's an accurate statement or is it sort of something that's still maybe ostracized in society? I think there are definitely stereotypes and there's ostracism that exists, um, but sometimes it just gets masked, particularly because I think young people are much more um, supportive and inclusive and that kind of thing. Mm. And so sometimes, you know, young people's voices are actually louder and that drowns out these kind of older, more conservative voices, but they are still there. Uh, I mean, Taiwan is, for example, just a very nonviolent society, but that doesn't mean that hate doesn't exist. For example, the fact that it's a nonviolent society maybe just masks a lot of the, the biases and prejudice and, that do exist. Um, and so that, that's one of the issues that I think it is now becoming much more clear that there's still a lot of work to do, that uh, there, is, there are just there's a, a conservatives that are out there. Um, mm. And what's also quite striking is that maybe, they're, they, maybe they aren't actually in the majority, but because they are the conservatives, they tend to have more resources and money, and so they can organize better, they can get more people out there faster. Um, you know, that's very clear in campaigning that they had all these uh, ads and so forth. Yeah, so I, I actually wrote down a couple... Because this, this made shockwaves through the international media. Uh -huh. And I wrote down a couple of article headlines that I read, right? And so it's, it's, it's funny to see sort of the uh, competing viewpoints. It, it's almost like, it's almost silly. So CNBC, the big winner in Taiwan's weekend elections, China. But then you read South China Morning Post, 
Taiwan election lost on local issues, not relation with mainland, right? Al Jazeera says, China accused of political meddling. You talked about sort of resources. I read that Al Jazeera article, and they essentially made it um, seem as if there was maybe Chinese money put into you know, propaganda and campaigning and things like that that may have been an influence on this vote. Mm. Does that seem to be the case? Um, yes, that is the case. Um, but also there's a lot of American money coming in too. Uh, for example, China, you know, uh, with regards to marriage equality, I don't think they really care. Like they have uh, no horse in this game. But American evangelical groups do. And so, you know, while the rest of the world, I think, looks at Taiwan as maybe the first country that will legalize gay marriage in Asia as a beacon of progressive values, maybe these fundamentalist Christian groups in America think of Taiwan as the first country in Asia to fall to Satan or something of that sort. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like so millions are being funded in, uh, funneled in through uh, America, actually, by evangelical groups. Um, You're able to trace those like political. Yeah, it's it's known. Uh, it's been known for Whoa. a while. Um, so it's actually very interesting that the you know um, evangelical Christians are internationally organized in some sense, and uh, even in Taiwan, which is a fairly obscure country. Um, wow. Yeah, and then on the other hand, you have Chinese money coming in to these uh, pro-China groups, which often have ties with organized crime. Um, and basically the thing is that everyone knows that Chinese money is coming in, but then what do you do? Because there's a lot of businesses that conduct business with China. Um, this one is, you know, well, how do you distinguish between a legitimate political donation from a Chinese person, let's say, and some attempt by the Chinese government to influence elections? Because Taiwan is a democracy. If you do crack down on that, people will accuse you of being undemocratic. And that is one of the paradoxes that, you know, you have this entire political camp, which hope for the country to cease to exist, that to become part of China. But that is a legitimate political view in society, and so you can't actually take action against them um, for these wow. donations. So you have money coming out on both sides. I mean, Taiwan is historically caught between America and China, these two major powers. And it's actually very interesting how they came together in this weird way. I'm going to put a pin in that because I want to come back to that in a second. Uh -huh. First of all, this is fascinating for me. <laughs> um, but I understand you know, sort of the logical, I guess, reason why China would want unification. Mm. For someone who is Taiwanese and is in favor of unification, what is the argument for that? Like, what is what are they saying is the reason that, you know, Taiwan should be incorporated into China? Mm. I mean, my own family is like this, and it's very interesting because uh, oftentimes it is this... Uh, a very abstract notion of nation, you know, that we're all Chinese, we're all descendants of the dragon, what have you, 5,000 years of history. And so, you know, there have been periods in Chinese history in which a state broke off, but then later became part of China again. And so they claim that, that, you know, this is Taiwan, Taiwanese identity is just a, a ripple in the larger, you know, whatever sphere of, of this history, and so it doesn't matter. Um, and oftentimes, regarding contemporary China and how undemocratic it is, uh, they actually don't realize this. There's this very idealized view of China, that they think China has become democratic in some sense after the free market reforms instituted in the 1980s um, under Deng Xiaoping and afterwards. Um, that's another paradox in the news in Taiwan that pro-China news uh, outlets or pro-unification news outlets oftentimes do not report on bad things happening in China. And so these people who are dependent on these news sources have a very idealized view of China. They think that all these problems are solved again already. And so there's no issue if Taiwan just joins back with China. And then they look at China uh, it's, it's rising uh, economic and political clout, and they say, well, we want to be part of that too, because, you know, Taiwan's economy is bad and poor, and we're being left behind, and so we want to join this rising power, China, which they think will take over the world. And so there's that. Wow. I was actually wondering that when I was, you know, thinking of some things to talk to you about. Do you know, in, in regards to the economy, do you know what makes up the largest percentage of GDP or like what, you know, the, the largest sector of the economy is focused on? Um, currently service sector, I believe. Oh. So that's why um, in 2014 with the uh, Sunflower Movement that broke out specifically in regards to a uh, trade deal that would allow Chinese investment in the service sector industry, which could have affected, you know, political freedoms in all of these industries. And if I'm correct in that, the Sunflower Movement was essentially, again, like young people, college students who blocked that trade agreement from happening? Yeah, and that was accomplished by uh, occupying legislature um, for 23 days. Oh. Um, so it was like a student occupation of the legislature involved fighting with the police and that kind of thing. Um, the issue is that the KMT, the Kuomintang, had uh, uh, 
circumvented the uh, the review measures for the bill. Um, they just declared the bill had passed um, and just it didn't go through a committee review or discussion on the floor. Um, and that was accomplished just through the speaker um, with at the podium or actually just hiding in the bathroom with a with a, a megaphone declaring that you know that it had passed. That discussion had passed. It was passed thirty within thirty seconds with no discussion of the bill. Wow. Mm. And then that sort of you know ushered in a few years of almost like a progressive wave here, right? Yeah, I think so. And what's interesting is that particularly now um, the question is is that wave fading? Has a spell of that? Time period faded now, whether in terms of uh, Taiwanese identity, the, which became stronger it seems after the movement, or with regards to the fact that Taiwanese society was seen as embracing progressive values, um, because then people started paying attention to young people, and young people's voices seem to occupy a disproportionate space uh, in public discourse. And now it's becoming clear that young people's voices are not maybe the only voices out there, or progressive young people's voices are not the only voices out there. It's interesting because, you know, I, I've always voted left I've voted in four presidential elections now mm. if I have to put myself somewhere on like the political spectrum I'm left mm. um, but I, I don't want to you know demonize everyone on the right as like wrong or bad mm. or something like mm. that um, but it's it's interesting in that in the United States and you know I mean you obviously know this stuff quite yeah. well mm. but with Obama and and there were problems mm. at least it was like someone with a very sober attitude like mm a very calming stature. Mm. Um, it, it, it felt like we were at least moving in a direction towards like intelligent discourse. And then Trump happens and it's just like, oh my God, like this is, we took two steps forward, three steps back. But at the same, in the same token, like mm. there's sort of these political cycles. So just now we had midterms in the States and you know, Democrats took the house and it's like, all right, yes, this is a good thing. But I think that people kind of assumed that would happen. Um, I'm wondering here if you think that this is just sort of a political cycle and then when the presidential election comes, things will you know, lean back left or if this is, like you were saying, could be the potential for a trajectory more towards you know, a conservative society. I think both are true, actually, because I do think that maybe people are focusing too much on this midterm election currently. Um, there have been gains, for example, by uh, the New Power Party, which emerged after the Sunflower Movement, um, which is much more left-wing. Um, and so that happened at the same time the KMT made gains. But I think that you know, for many people, similar to maybe how some people were burned out after Sanders did not get the Democratic nomination and then voted for Trump, sometimes people are just looking for change, and it mm. kind of doesn't matter what change to them is. And they kind of vote on that basis. And so maybe that's why you do see the rise of a left-wing progressive a youth party, and at the same time you'd have voters voting to put the KMT, the older conservative party, which is the former authoritarian party, back into power. Mm. And that is quite interesting to me as a phenomenon. Um, there are a lot of parallels. I think uh, Tsai, Tsai Ing-wen, the current president, was elected in on the basis of a mandate of hope and change, similar to Barack Obama. And she came off as very charismatic in 2016 elections. But also, similar to Obama, she is naturally quite academic, very professorial, and um, not as charismatic as she sometimes seems. You know, Obama had periods in which he, was just, he just seemed kind of cold in issues because he was just too professorial. Mm. Um, and that's true of Tsai, and Tsai has really kind of lost her charisma, her luster in that sense. And she really needs to game that back, or otherwise she will have problems in 2020. And that's what's very interesting. Um, the DPP just thought they could walk in and win, maybe similar to, let's say, Hillary Clinton. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. I had put a pin in, um, in sort of like U.S.-Taiwanese relations. Uh -huh. Very shortly after the election of Tr uh, President Trump, he made a call to Taiwan, and this made, or the call to the president, and it made all of this, you know, again, like international media outlets were covering it. And it seemed as if it was almost like a purposeful slight towards China, almost like a chess move. Mm. What is the relationship with the United States and Taiwan? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's complicated um, because I think, um, for me, I always emphasize against this blind adulation of the United States, which many in Taiwan have, that the U.S. backed the KMT for decades and its decades of authoritarian rule. Um, massacres that killed tens of thousands, such as the 228 massacre, occurred under the blind eye of America. They turned a blind eye to that because they wanted to prop it up against China as an alternative, um, similar to propping up you know strongmen in Latin America for anti-communism. Um, but at the same time, 
America is Taiwan's major grantor of uh, security from China, that uh, potentially America will intervene in the case of a Chinese attack. Well, that happened, just nobody knows. America is very strategically vague on it. Um, there's even a term, strategic ambiguity, which is used in IR studies and so forth. Um, so, and different American presidential administrations have had different relations to Taiwan, how friendly they are towards it, uh, how strong they are in opposition towards China. And these things aren't always coextensive. Opposing China doesn't always mean that you also will support Taiwan either. Right. But then it was an unexpected thing that Donald Trump broke from president, um, as he has on so many different things, by uh, calling Taiwan, referring to Taiwan as having a president, and doing these things which seem like America is acknowledging Taiwanese sovereignty and Taiwanese independence in some sense. Um, and that's, that was quite interesting, and that was quite surprising. Um, the Trump Thai phone call, I think, we'll only really know decades from now how exactly that came about, um, how it was arranged, and why Thai was able to do that. Um, it seems a, like an unexpected uh, move by her, and one which uh, really took the world by storm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, Trump hasn't only like thrown out the playbook; he's kind of uh-huh. like lit it on fire. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's the one other one of those issues. I think that uh, sometimes people in Taiwan really idealize America. America is the defender of freedoms and liberty mm. and so forth, including Donald Trump. And so they actually don't realize a lot of the different uh, things he's done, um, his incompetence, um, even how far right wing he is, because they believe that he's just a traditional Republican or something like that, mm. that is interested in defending Taiwan against China on the basis of claims to democracy. Um, and it's an issue, I think, particularly with the Trump administration having so many internal fractures. A lot of people in Taiwan aren't actually too aware of that. They're, they very much look at America from a distance uh, through this uh, rose-tinted lens. Um, and sometimes they don't understand domestic U.S. politics that well. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I had just read this book, um, maybe it's a month ago now, mm. but it was called The World America Made. And, mm. you know, the the author was essentially arguing that the relative peace and safety of the world nowadays as compared to in the past is largely due to the fact that the United States is a major power, right? Mm. And we don't have to get into that argument, but the the way that it sort of relates to this conversation is he mentioned that, you know, currently China does not have any official diplomatic allies. Mm. Is that that's a true statement? Um I don't think that's, well, uh, allies, I guess, I don't know. Uh, I don't think, China definitely has diplomatic relations with the rest of the world. I think, right. um, I don't know about officially if that's true. I've, I've never heard that claim. But if, uh, regardless, I think China has enough sway right now that it can influence a lot of countries to ally with it. Um, okay. It always has countries that are kind of under its auspices. Um, North Korea is one yeah, of right. the most obvious example. But at this point, it can coerce many places. Um, it's built a lot of ties around the world for that express purpose, I think, to counter American influence around the world. Okay. Uh, and another thing, and I'm, I'm glad when you can like help to sort of clear up some of my maybe uh, my mis, uh, misconceptions. But another thing I had read online was that like there's this almost lingering ennui, this sort of that this sleeping dragon of China is like always sort of looming Mm -hmm. and that it's in the collective conscience of Taiwanese people in Taiwan like always wondering like when might the day come when they decide to sort of incorporate us and take us over is that sort of an exaggeration or do you think that maybe is is a bit true I think it's absolutely true because it very much is just part of uh, it bleeds into everything it's just sort of out there floating out there in the air Almost, um, and that's that's one of the things that you know. Whenever China does these big actions, there's almost no reaction from Taiwan because people are so used to it. Mm. The comparison I would make is maybe in, in South Korea, how there's not a lot of reaction whenever North Korea makes a new missile threat because they're so used to it. And people have come, you know, really just tuned it out because it's always there. And at the same time, then suddenly you have you know concern all the time that maybe people are just becoming really complacent. They haven't uh, really thought about what China's uh, growing influence means for them. But at the same time, then you suddenly have these unexpected switches in the public consciousness when suddenly people do become concerned. For example, a few people could have anticipated the Sunfire movement. Uh, people kept talking beforehand how people were just unaware of this threat that China, Taiwan would just be slowly, uh, gradually swallowed up. And suddenly you have 500,000 people in the streets. Hmm. And so I think that's the other flip side of it. And it's always been a question for me what exactly it is that triggers that sudden switch. And it's something I, I wonder myself a lot. Yeah. You know, one thing I think is sort of cool is that right now, Anthony Bourdain sort of ushered in this era of travel. Like, travel is quite popular right now. There's tons of people who are like travel bloggers and things Uh like that. He helped to really make chefs popular. Uh And I think maybe in sort of the collective 
international conscious, like Taiwan as a place is becoming a bit more popular. And maybe I'll, I'll explain that uh-huh. in that, you know, Southeast Asia is always seen as sort of like the backpacker place uh-huh. because it's so cheap. Yeah. But now I've been seeing a lot more coverage for Taiwan. Mm-hmm. I just saw that there were a number of restaurants here that recently received like Michelin stars. Mm-hmm. In New York City, there's a few places that are becoming a bit more popular. Mm-hmm. Um, Eddie Huang, someone who has, you know, Bauhaus in New York City. Right. So maybe, you know, a- another way to sort of, you know, um, hammer home Taiwanese sovereignty is in, you know, the collective view of the world to to show it, you know, as a place and a people and a, a distinct, unique culture and, a, you know, a people who are proud to be from where they're from. I think so. And I think, uh, you know, maybe one way to term it in uh, IR terms is soft power. Mm. Uh, what, but how do you brand Taiwan then? Uh, what kind of things do you do to depict Taiwan to national world? And I think what's interesting is that if you look at how Taiwan, let's say, official efforts have usually framed themselves or even just, you know, artists or uh, Taiwanese expats or things like that, in other parts of the world. Um, so there's always an identity split. And sometimes, you know, for example, depending on which administration is power, whether it's a KMT administration or a DPP administration, you have this framing of Taiwan as this version of China, or you have this framing of Taiwan in an attempt to distance itself from China as something else, maybe closer to Southeast Asia or more similar to Japan or something like that. And so you have this kind of uh, identity split. And sometimes that's uh, still being worked out. I think there is a definitely a rising profile for Taiwan um, in recent years, uh, whether that's with, with regards to the after effects of the Trump's iPhone call or anything else. Um, and it's a question to me, apart from, you know, let's say politically um, in terms of the rise of China or uh, as an issue between America and China, why Taiwan is becoming more and more known. Um, I've observed that as well. I'm not totally sure why either. Mm. Um, but it does seem to be happening. Just so maybe people under, or people and myself understand yeah. the, the sort of history of Taiwan, you had, you know, like dynastic China, where like oh. as an American, you learn about like in oh. history class, right? The dynasties yeah. in which at that time, you know, the island that was Taiwan, which was not Taiwan yet, uh-huh. was part of those Sometimes, dynasties. Sometimes, not always. Okay. Um, what's actually interesting is that that only, uh, for a long time, Taiwan was not really incorporated into dynasties. Uh, that occurred during the Qing dynasty, which uh, the borders of which form modern day China. But even then, the Qing dynasty did not control all of Taiwan, only parts of it. Okay. And uh, there were also earlier waves of uh, colonization, actually, from uh, Dutch, Spain, and Portugal. Portugal, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, but also those did not really control the whole island. Um, but it's actually very interesting just looking at the uh, dynastic Chinese records. Um, a lot of uh, contemporary Chinese nationalism is really just uh, you know, a kind of invented tradition or it's very uh, ahistorical, this notion of 5,000 years of unchanging China. But really the borders of present-day China are um, the Qing Dynasty, China. And so uh, Xinjiang or Tibet or these other places weren't always part of China. China is really the core that's uh, surrounding northern China, um, or sometimes southern China. Um, really, you know, inner China is sometimes the term. And that's always China, and that seems is more consistently China, but Taiwan has not always been part of that. Sometimes it has, sometimes it hasn't. Um, Man. It's, yeah, it's actually very fascinating. If you look back at all these uh, literary works in uh, the Ming Dynasty or yeah, earlier. Fascinating, yeah. yeah. You, see, you hear all these things about, you know, outlaws fleeing to Southeast Asia or something or the South China Seas or whatever, and there's the different islands they flee to. And sometimes, you know, historians are just like, is this Taiwan? Is this island that's being referenced in this, you know, text Taiwan or not? Or it could be another of uh, alternative, you know, there's a number of alternative possibilities. Um, it's quite fascinating, this history. Yeah. There's a book, I think it's called, it's either When China Ruled the Seas or When China Ruled the World about the Ming Dynasty. And it's, Utterly fascinating. Yeah, I think I've read that. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Another thing that's like it's interesting that you talk about, you, you know, the Dutch and Portugal, because, you know, I was just in Indonesia for a while, and like I don't think people realize that like, you know, East Timor was Portuguese. Uh, you know, Indonesia belonged to a Dutch, not even the Dutch, but to a Dutch company. Uh-huh. Um, these that's right. Tiny yeah. little European countries like dominated large swaths of. Asia. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Even my own last name is partly Dutch because uh, my dad was born in Indonesia. Oh, really? oh yeah. yeah. You're saying he's, he's a Hakka. So my last name is you know Chu normally Tio, but uh, the Hakka pronunciation is Hugh. But because uh, you know it should be H I U. But because of the Dutch influence, uh, U becomes O E, and so that's my uh, last name yeah, is uh, yeah. yeah Hugh with an O E. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm German. It's also like very German. Uh-huh. O E is a right. substitute for just like O Uma. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then essentially, you know, again, in textbooks, we call that the age of exploration, but uh-huh. we'll call it imperialism because that's, <laughs> that's what it is. Was, yeah. um, and, you know, that during that era, essentially, Taiwan was then like opened up 
to China. Is that correct? Like once the Dutch left? Um, yeah, just there are different uses for it. Um, sometimes it was opened up. Uh, it's not clear how much the the central uh, emperor, you know, central administration usually how important they thought Taiwan was. Um, sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Uh, it was kind of a strange island. Um, there's a lot of uh, strange beliefs about, for example, Taiwanese indigenous uh, who lived on the island then, um, you know, this belief that there was this kind of odd barbaric people out there. Uh, there's some strange beliefs about these like fantastical creatures which supposedly li lived on this island of Taiwan. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, I can't recall all this stuff in detail off the top of my head. Uh, there's a very interesting book by uh, Emma Tang about this. Oh, cool. Um, the title of which also, for some reason, I cannot remember currently. Emma Tang. Yeah. Um, and then just to sort of like, you know, round off the, the history, it was the 1940s when Taiwan first sort of became a sovereign I know, you know, um, it's tricky, yeah, it's but... Tricky, it's tricky. <laughs> um, so actually the interesting thing is the last time the same uh, political regime ruled both China, mainland China, and Taiwan was in 1895, which was the Qing dynasty. But that's when the Qing ceded uh, Taiwan to Japan after its defeat in the Sino-Japanese War. And so that's when, you know, just in terms of modern history, Taiwan and China really diverged then. Um, when the KMT came over in the 1940s, uh, that was after it lost to the uh, CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and then, um, um, you know, then technically Taiwan's restored to China, but then the two of them were fighting about what China was and who ruled it. And so they came here for that. Um, and that's actually 10% of the contemporary population came with the KMT. The 90% of the population had originated from the earlier waves of migration going back to the Ming Dynasty and so forth um, from 400 years ago, maybe. And then uh, they were colonized during the Japanese period, so they all spoke Japanese and, and Taiwanese. And um, you know, they, they also didn't always enjoy KMT rule, which sought to restore Chinese culture, introduce uh, Mandarin, speaking Mandarin versus Taiwanese or Japanese, um, to re-Sinicize Taiwan and so forth. Um, and that led to a lot of conflicts. Man, your knowledge is really impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I do this for a living. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then um, it was the White Terror period, is that what it was called? No. Um, so yeah, I mean, because there was rising political dissidents, um, people chafed under KMT rule, uh, the KMT just instituted a reign of terror, basically, um, which is termed the white terror. Um, oftentimes, this led to the persecution of intellectuals, um, anybody that had land or property, uh, people that had the resources to resist the KMT in some form. Um, a lot of them were leftists. Um, some were, you know, maybe more, even some early uh, pro-independence people existed back then. Uh, some were actually... Uh, pro-China, that pro-communist actually, China actually. Mm. Um, and they were persecuted as leftists and so forth. And that lasted for decades. Um, it was once the longest martial law period in the world, um, which was only surpassed, I think, in like 2011 or something like that. Something very, very recent. Um, yeah, and so there's this, the KMT felt this need to put down uh, resistance and to maintain an iron grip on Taiwan, uh, to build it up militarily as a kind of fortress to retake China. Uh, eventually those ambitions grew more and more out of reach, uh, it became clear at some point that the KMT would not be able to take uh, China again. And so they kind of settled in, although they still have this ambition of eventually reunifying Taiwan and China. And during those long years, the uh, those descended from those who came with the KMT constituted an elite, um, a political and economic elite that ruled over the rest of the population. Um, there's this kind of ethnic divide between those descended who, with, uh, who came with the KMT and those who were there originally. Um, and those things are kind of playing out today still, though I think uh, Taiwan has really moved beyond those ethnic divisions. Like, I myself am, like, you know, mixed uh, on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how much does that history, because, you know, a lot of the people who went through that period of time are still alive here today. Like, oh. how much of that, you know, still sort of, you know, color society or, you know, affects what's going on in Taiwan? Yeah, it's one of the things that I find very interesting because uh, Taiwan has moved beyond it in some ways and in other ways it hasn't. Um, Taiwan is a democracy now. There's democratic elections, and you talk to a lot of political scientists, and they're like, yeah, Taiwan's a model for democracy in Asia or what have you. But at the same time, then, you have these people from the former authoritarian period that are still active figures in public life. Um, for example, the mayor of New Taipei, who was just elected uh, this past week, he was the uh, man directly responsible as a police chief, um, a police official, for the uh, death of one of Taiwan's uh, democracy activists. Wow. Yeah, and so he was in charge then. He was just elected to power. Reportedly, uh, the, the last president, the last KMT president, actually opposed opening up Taiwan to democracy in the 1990s. Yet, when after the transition, he later ran for president and won democratically. And so you have a lot of these strange contradictions. Um, a lot of people that are guilty of a lot of horrible things are still out there. Um, a lot of the victims for 
uh, of, of crimes during the short-term period have not received justice, and they sometimes are still afraid to speak about um, their experiences, and they are getting older and probably will eventually die. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting time. Um, wow. I always think of Taiwan as somewhere between you know, democracy and the transition, uh, the transition to democracy from authoritarianism, but not fully there. And it has some of the worst aspects of both sides, particularly because uh, the claim that Taiwan is now a democracy and all these issues are settled is used by the former, uh, the people that got away with these crimes and or were guilty of these crimes during the authoritarian period as a way to avoid being persecuted for them now or held responsible for them now. Um, yeah. Yeah, man, it's interesting to me because sometimes I feel like I'm a little negative on here. And it's not purposefully, but when we talk about history, and it's really the history of everywhere, um, it's often, you know, not so great. And it's funny because everywhere I go, all the people I interact with are really great. And they make me feel welcome. And I have an amazing time in all the places that I'm in. It's just interesting how people sort of like get swept up in the machine, you know, globally. Like in every country I go to, there are good people who are sort of being led <laughs> by a history of bad people. <laughs> uh-huh. I think that's true. Um, you know, not to be too abstract, but uh, the German philosopher Hegel once called, I think, history like a, a slaughter bench. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's basically what it is. Like, um, sometimes it is just a history of barbarities, and that is a. Uh, it's quite striking, you know, particularly when you go around Asia. Um, you know, these countries that were colonized or latecomers to so-called Western modernity, and um, you have these issues all around. And sometimes the claim is that it's all democratic and it's all you know settled, so forth. For example, I don't view Japan as a democracy. There's been one party that's been voted in continuously since World War II, despite the fact that they do have a democratic system. And so, can you really call it a democracy? Right. Maybe not, but just the rest of the world has concluded it is. Oh. And so that's that's one thing that's lost. Um, for example, just with the South Korea, you see just. Uh, uh, with the Kim regime, just that was just in power and recently deposed. Basically, they were uh, that was a little uh, daughter of the former dictator. Uh, you saw the persecution of artists, intellectuals, and dissidents again just a few years ago. And people are like, you know, it's South Korea's democracy that everything is done and settled with. And it's really not true. Um, East Asia, the economic miracle of East Asia, has really. That's all right. So there's yeah, some sort of animal somewhere. <laughs> has really blinded people to uh, the fact that all these issues are still going on, that a lot of these uh, uh, the, these past regimes are still not accountable, held accountable, um, that you have the return to authoritarianism and things like that. I mean, the Philippines is a striking example. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the one people have talked about because there have been so many deaths. But uh, in those places in which they're not mass killings, it's uh, still an issue. And sometimes like, just get, people just get lost in like, oh, the economy is growing, Asia's on the rise, the whatever, East Asian tigers are on the rise, and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, I'm going to come back to that in, in a little bit again. I'm going to put a pin in that one too. Because I want to talk about you, the, you work for, write for, and oh. also co-founded New, yeah, New um, Bloom? Yeah, I'm one of the, yeah, I'm one of the founders. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so I guess, is it fair to say that you're sort of like unapologetically progressive? Yeah. Well, I, we all call ourselves leftists, basically. We're you know, radical leftists, actually. Um, okay. Yeah, progressive. Yeah, you could say that. Now, with that, um, I think it was just two days ago that I had seen on the news that it was either a journalist or a photojournalist from China disappeared. Yeah, that's right. We, you know, we see this the world over. Actually, when I was in Jakarta, and you know, there's, there's people that disappear in Indonesia. That's right. We like to say that it doesn't happen in the United States, but like uh, silencing of dissent mm-hmm. has has happened. As you know, all the way back to John Adams wrote it into law, the yeah. Alien and Sedition Acts. Uh-huh. Are you ever nervous about the work that you're doing? Uh, yeah, and that's the other thing that I do have uh, stalkers on the internet, uh, people that know an alarming amount of things about my personal life, and you know, and so really? forth. Yeah, and uh, you know, unfortunately, Taiwan is very weak with regards to many of that. Uh, it's very easy to sue someone for libel, for example, and it's used. Sometimes people try to use that to silence people. Um, you get to argue with somebody, you call them an idiot, and you can sue them um, on the street. If you call someone an idiot, you know, they can sue you for libel. Really? Um, yeah. And also, stalking laws are very weak. Um, I have a friend who's a national-level political figure, and I was having an issue with somebody at that point, actually. And I asked him in a coffee shop, like the one we're sitting in now, like, what do you do about it? Because you know, you're a great deal more famous than me. You're a national-level political figure. And he answered, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about it because the laws are very weak. And he turned around and pointed to someone in the coffee shop and said, that woman has been stalking me for the last two weeks. And what? yeah, yeah. And literally, it was very funny because uh, 
I always try to share this story. That woman wasn't talking about politics or anything like that. She wanted him to post on Facebook, where he has hundreds of thousands of followers, that Haruki Murakami is a great author because uh, she wanted to prove the, the head of her reading club wrong and you know, declare that Haruki Murakami is a great author. And so you have this, these kind of issues. Um, and then Taiwan is a, uh, only recently a post-authoritarian country. You still have these gangsters running around in politics and that kind of thing. Um, you offend somebody, then what? You know, it's, they could take actions against you, and that is an issue. Um, for example, one of the Sunflower Movement leaders, his uh, wedding was protested by these uh, pro-China gangsters. They came all the way out to his wedding to do that. Uh, I was actually there. Um, wow. And... Um, you know, their disappearances. Well, there aren't really disappearances. That 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 would probably become well known. But uh, you do have some odd deaths of people in car accidents and things like that. And people can't really sort it out um, again because these people are still running around, and nobody discusses this um, because people are just generally conclude that everything is all done and settled. Um, yeah, it's definitely an issue. I mean, does it? You know, do you have to take protect like measures to protect yourself or? Not really. I don't think I'm. Uh, I've reached that level, uh, maybe one day, or maybe I'm just careless. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, listen, like you're incredibly well-spoken. Like you, I, I liken it to this. And again, like you, you, you had an American education too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people come out of high school and even college and don't know the history of the country that you're in, uh-huh. that they're in. And in the last 40 ish minutes, like you've run through an incredible amount of information oh, about you. Taiwan, which is so then I'm assuming that you like, you know, a lot more than a lot of other people. <laughs> Do you have, you know, like political aspirations or, you no, know, I have, uh, I would, I would, I make a terrible political candidate. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, to be frank, I've had offers to join political parties before. Um, I won't say, but the thing is that that would just be, uh, I don't think I would ever run. Um, I, w- I would not want to work in a political administration. Um, I prefer to do what I do now, just be kind of an on-the-ground journalist who writes about things that people don't write about. Um, I don't want to favor one party or another because I want to maintain a critical distance from all of them. Um, I also prefer to be on-the-ground reporting rather than become like a pundit or uh, a talking head on on you know, in on TV or radio, which has become increasingly common in the past two years, basically, mm. um, for me. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I like what I'm doing now because I think there's a real lack of independent news outlets on Taiwan that are um, objective, but also frank about what their underlying political beliefs are. And also that uh, particularly do things in English to outreach the international world. Um, they also were bilingual, so we try to establish dialogue between, you know, both the Taiwanese language discourse, uh, I mean, the Chinese language discourse in Taiwan and international discourse on Taiwan, which is usually in English. Um, and so I think there's a real need for that. And so that's why I really committed kind of my time and energy to building up New Bloom. Um, yeah. It's really interesting that you say that because I just very recently got into writing and I've recently been exposed to, you know, people putting out music, content, art into the world from different oh. countries. And it is true, like for better or for worse, that like the language of the world is English. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's interesting that like if your content is not in English, then it might not be seen or consumed or understood by you know a large part of the international world. Mm. So that's sort of like yeah. um, that's a strategy, I guess, that you thought of when you decided to. Yeah, do yeah I mean, people sometimes ask why we did we choose English, but English is very clearly the lingua franca of the international world. Um, the other issue is that. Um, you know, there's just English education in Taiwan is quite poor, despite the fact that everyone goes through years of it. Uh, just you see this in a lot of other parts of East Asia as well, um, particularly Japan, for example. Um, just that education, despite being taught for so long, it's all rote memorization. You don't actually learn how to use this language. And the other part of it is that even if you do have good English, sometimes you don't have a kind of international perspective or this knowledge of, of the Western world or uh, international trends. And Taiwan is always trying to pursue these things because it is marginalized from the international community. However, it sometimes doesn't really have a sense of what, what, what these actual trends are. It sees things through a very uh, Taiwan-centric perspective, not looking at how, let's say, the Western world looks at Taiwan. And I think that, particularly for me, because of my upbringing, uh, I have a kind of liminal perspective where I can see both and the shortcomings of both. And so I really try to use that to my advantage or to, because I think, think there's a need for more people that can have that, can do that um, for both sides, really. Yeah. I mean... It, it, it's maybe unfair to ask you to predict the future. Like, I, I sort of asked you to predict the next election. <laughs> um, but we talked about, like, you know, soft power. Sort of, where do you think the future lies in terms of sovereignty? Like, would it take the international community to get involved and to say, like, we are all going to recognize Taiwan as Taiwan? And is that 
a you know, is there poten the potential for that to happen? Yeah, I think it cuts two ways because one, yes, that is true. The international community does need to recognize Taiwan and uh, in some kind of permanent form. And that, that will be hard to realize because of uh, China's growing clout. But at the same time, a lot of things depend on China itself. Um, China will always be there. Um, and so it, if it always is claiming Taiwan, it will always be a threat. And so um, <laughs> there does need to be some way of ensuring that China does not continue its uh, territorial claims over Taiwan or its claims of sovereignty over Taiwan on a permanent basis. And how that will be realized, I kind of don't see that under the current administration. Um, as long as the Communist Party is there and continuing to claim Taiwan, that will be an issue. And so things are kind of really dependent. Um, Taiwan cannot exist, you know, no man is an island. Taiwan is not, it, it's an island. It cannot exist alone. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know what will lead to that change. And it's something structural needs to happen. But with uh, the instabilities we see in the world currently, the possibilities that will rise will be different in the future. And so maybe something will happen. Um, it really depends, I think, also on Taiwan, its willingness, when those opportunities arise, to take them to be daring enough to take them. And I think that that is an issue. Um, will Taiwan be there? That's something I'm trying to work on. Yeah. Just, you know, will Taiwan know enough that this is the opportunity that needs to take? Um, yeah. Let's throw some love towards Taiwan, right? So I mentioned <laughs> earlier that, uh, you know, in a lot of, you know, travel bloggers and things like that, it was sort of like the sort of, it's almost like a, a hidden secret for a while, you know? Like, I think that it didn't get enough attention and now I think it's starting to. What is great about Taipei? What is great about Taiwan? That's a question. I'm not sure either because I think that, uh, <laughs> you know, it's become just part of everyday life and I just think don't think too much about it. I think um, Taiwan has managed to combine a lot of influences. I think that's probably what it is. You know, obviously there are influences from China, also Japanese colonization, uh, the West, um, you know, particularly in the, in the 50s, let's say, through American GI bases or things like that. Um, and also the fact is that Taiwan, because it's marginalized from the international world, paradoxically, that has led to many of the good things about Taiwan, because it's marginalized, and so it wants to impress the international world to be accepted by the international world. And sometimes that means jumping on what are perceived to be uh, avant-garde trends or unique things or trying to be the best uh, to, be, to prove to the world that you're, you should be let in. And so that's actually one of the odd things that paradoxically has uh, really benefited Taiwan and led to the way things are now, that it is excluded and that it does really have to work hard for a place in the world to be recognized in any form. And so I think that being a hidden gem, that's uh, what Taiwan has really tried to do. And so that's, that's one of the strange things about Taiwan's situation, that maybe that is the reason why all these things have taken place in Taiwan, or why mm. Taiwan society is the way it is now. What about the future for Brian? Does New Bloom grow? Do you stay here in Taiwan? That's a good question. Um, New Bloom in their current, its current form has already reached a sort of peak because the thing is the English language market in Taiwan is not very large. Mm. Uh, I mean, just in terms of independent media outlets in Taiwan, we already produce the most content. Uh, we publish daily. Um, and the market is not large enough to actually support a publication like this. Um, the Taipei Times, the only English language newspaper in Taiwan, is losing money. Uh, News Lens International, probably the largest online uh, media outlet on Taiwan, which you know also posts New Bloom articles, uh, reposts them is also probably not making money because it's part of a larger Chinese language publication and they just maintain this English side to have something international, either for credibility, just to look like, oh, we're so international, look at us, or because of this notion to try to advance Taiwan's uh, recognizability in the world. Uh, so because New Bloom won't grow beyond a certain point, then we have to think about other ways to do, um, to kind of expand, probably having more Chinese language articles, uh, trying video or podcasting, mm. things like that. And so that's, a, that's an open question. Uh, we crowdfunded and that recently, in the past few months. And I got some money, but as I expected, it was not enough to radically transform the way we do things. Yeah. Um, but the nice thing is that because we are, um, we have maintained things with very little money in the past four years, if we lose money, that's not really going to be a big issue. We'll keep doing it anyway. Um, it, we're probably not going to get any more money, but we'll see. Um, so also doing you know, new innovative projects like you know, an oral history of the White Terror it's in English. That's something what we hope to do. Oh, wow. Yeah. And for me, I think I just, uh, I just hope to be here and continue working on that. And uh, in the meantime, the next set of elections is actually not two years away in 2020. Uh, 2020 is, uh, it's in January 2020, so it's just 14 months away. And wow. yeah, I'll be here until then, definitely. And just to ensure that we are covering that and on the ground, and whatever happens, we'll be ready for it. Well, I'll be following along, man. Like I said, uh, since the election this past weekend, um, I've been following your stuff on New Bloom. Like it's again, like it's really good coverage. Thank you. Uh, all right, so let's plug New Bloom and your articles and all that stuff. How can people find it? Um, so yeah, we're on the internet at newbloommag.net. 
That's a N-E-W-B-L-O-O-M-M-A-G dot net. We're also on Twitter, just a New Bloom Mag. Um, we're also on Facebook, New Bloom, um, New Bloom Magazine. And so, yeah, yeah, I hope people follow. Awesome, yeah. Well, listen, thank you, brother. Appreciate yeah. you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. That is a wrap on episode 92 of the Voyages of Tim Better podcast. Thank you to Brian for coming on the episode today. Remember to check the show notes for this episode to find the links for New Bloom and how to get in contact with Brian. Thank you to all of you Voyagers, as always, for tuning in and listening to me and my guest and for following along with my travels. You can check me out on Instagram at the Voyages of Tim V. And you can send me an email at thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail.com. Thanks again, folks. And as always, please take care of each other. Mm-hmm.